Well, we're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I'm back in the book of Revelation, and uh, I want to restate the reason that I'm choosing to go through the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. Some have said, well, now wait a minute, aren't you going to do the whole book? Well, we'll we'll work at getting through the first five chapters. Let's start there. But my, my concern has been that I want us to so have a relationship with the glorified Lord Jesus Christ that uh, when you come to church, you meet Him, uh, you worship Him, you grow in Him, uh, you find Him to be the, uh, the blessing of your life, and I find Him to be the blessing of my life. And as I said, we're living in difficult days, and they're only going to get worse. And it's so important, then, that we have this glorified Lord Jesus Christ before us, that we're fellowshipping and walking with Him. And so it's to give us a high view of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God, if we have put our faith in Him. In chapter 1 of this book of Revelation, God highly honored His Son and revealed to Him His plans in detail for exalting Him and giving Him the kingdoms of the world, Why so? Because he fulfilled his Father's will in coming here and going to the cross where he conquered Satan and sin and provided for you and me this salvation, this so great a salvation, so that we could be reconciled back to God and live with him and enjoy him throughout the eternal age of ages. Because he did that, because he did the will of his Father, God says, now I'm going to reveal to you in detail how I'm going to highly exalt and honor you and give you the kingdoms of this world. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God gave it to him. So, in this book we call Revelation, God unfolds in detail to His Son how He's going to bring the world now controlled by Satan and rebellious mankind to an end and establish His Son on the throne of David here upon the earth and bring in everlasting righteousness as well as the eternal state. Now, there's so much more involved than just that. And if you know the book of Revelation, you're familiar with that. What is unveiled and unfolded there. But that's kind of the essence of it, if you please. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in turn, reveals His Father's plan to you and me. So this book is for you and me. What a great privilege is ours to have in our hands such a detailed, accurate revelation from God of end-time events. We know where this world is headed and how it's all going to play out. We have it right here in our hands, the big capstone, the great capstone of the Bible, this book of Revelation. This revelation was revealed to the Apostle John to be written down and given to seven churches located at that time in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches represent all of God's churches, all the redeemed during during this present church age that began back there on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, when the Holy Spirit was given, and this time He would permanently indwell every true believer from that point out. And you're here this morning, and I'm here, and because we who are redeemed, you didn't walk in here by yourself, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you came in this building with you. And that's very important when you think about the message and even the worship time that we have 
already experienced uh, this morning. And uh, I can't but think what a tremendous encouragement this book of Revelation has been to the church down through the centuries, and what a tremendous encouragement it is for me, and I trust for you as well, and believers around the world even now. We know that even though hated and persecuted and martyred by Satan and those who are in this world system, yet we know what? We overcome in Christ. We triumph. We will, even if being slaughtered, will be resurrected. In fact, if I'm slaughtered, I immediately get to be in the presence of the Lord anyway. Free from this human body, this physical body. But we know that that doesn't end at all there. But rather, there will be a resurrection. And we will get to enter into His kingdom and reign with Him as the bride of Christ. And He is our soon coming Lord and Savior. And this book reveals that. I mean, what an encouragement then back there even in the first century when they were being persecuted under Nero and Domitian and and on down through the quarters of time. And to know that, hey, listen, we triumph. And the Lord is with us every step of the way, and we're going to reign with Him, and He will soon come. If that was true back there, think about what it must be right now, that He will soon be coming here. And at the very outset, Jesus presents Himself. That's what I want you to see. At the very beginning, He presents Himself to us in His great glory and splendor. And as He appeared and spoke to John, who was in exile as a prisoner of Rome on the island of Patmos, about 15 miles away from Ephesus, by the way, John is awestruck by Jesus' glory, which he describes in detail in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We'll not go back over that material, but you can read that at another time. The significance of this, when the Lord then addresses each one of these seven churches in chapter 2, He begins by focusing their attention on a certain aspect or aspects of this revelation of His glory. And the, the, the parts that He chooses for each church has great important significance, as we'll see even beginning this morning. So he focuses their attention on certain aspects of his glory, as described by John in chapter 1. And you and I need to recognize that what our Lord writes to each one of these seven churches, that message is also for you and me today. And to this church, not just individuals. And we could miss it there. And I hope to draw that in and help you to understand, not just to individuals, but to this very local church. The message is addressed to us as well. How do we know that? Well, after each one of the messages we read, he who has an ear, you've got two of them, I think. Okay, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So our Lord is still walking in the midst of our church today. Does he not walk there? He certainly does. With this introduction, let's visit then this first church that our Lord wrote to, the church at Ephesus, and follow along then as I read his letter recorded for us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have your Bible or your iPad or your iPhone, how about that? It'll be up here. Okay. And if you do have the iPad and iPhone, get the right station. Okay. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, 
says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but this I have against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Join me in prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could gather here this morning. Thank you for this local body of believers for corporate worship. Thank you that we can encourage one another. And Lord, thank you for those that have already done that. I think about the number of people that were faithfully teaching Sunday school from the little ones on up. I think of the ones who have led us in our worship and song this morning. And, Lord, that was a blessing as they focused our attention upon you and your glory and what you have and are doing for us. Lord, thank you for those that are working in kinder and junior church right now. Bless them. Encourage their hearts. And, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this written word. And as we have heard last week in our missions conference, Lord, in China, if they even get one copy of the Bible, they'll tear it apart and give it to different ones to take home secretly, to memorize it, and then bring it back and exchange those different portions with one another. What a joy, then, and privilege for us to have your written word. So many copies of it. And Lord, as I said, thank you as we think about the suffering church. And there are people who indeed are suffering because they love you and belong to you right now. I would imagine before the service is out, some of them will even be home in glory with you. They'll lose their lives. I thank you that, Father, nonetheless, this promise from you, this written word, this prophecy, is a great encouragement to them because they know that they overcome. They know that they will triumph. They know that they will be set free from a physical body in a wicked world and that they will one day be glorified. They'll get that glorified body and they're going to live and reign and be greatly rewarded by you because of their faithfulness. And, Father, we're concerned about changes dramatic changes, drastic changes that are happening so quickly in this country right now. And they do affect us, and they're going to affect us. And Father, therefore, again, may we just see our glorified Lord and Savior walking in our midst. May your word encourage our hearts and strengthen us to be faithful, even through that which you may call upon us to go through, that we'll be faithful to the end. And Father, may this also be a time when you will move in our hearts that we will long and look for our Lord and Savior because we want to be with Him. But in the meantime, may we enjoy your walk in our midst. And may we be pure. May we be true to your word. May we be filled with power, with love. And Father, even this message, we've all heard about having left your first love. And we kind of wonder, well, what's that all about? 
Would you speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, from your word, living in our hearts, and in this body corporately, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll have you take your outline, if you would, at this time. We're going to begin with the very first part there. The Lord Jesus Christ's presentation of himself to the Ephesian church. The Lord Jesus Christ's presentation of himself. You want to see him. He wanted them to start by seeing him. In verse 1 it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We begin first with our Lord's founding of this church. I want to start there. And there's so much that could be said. And we went through the book of Acts and we saw verses 19 or chapters 19 and 20 about the founding of the Ephesian church. But just let me say this. It had been in existence for around 40 years now. So, you know, it's, it's similar to the age of this church right here. I think it was 1966, 67, around there, that this church began. And um, evangelism was a big thing in Ephesus from the start. You might recall we began chapter 19 of Acts with Apollos. Now, he was a great Old Testament scholar. He was also a disciple of John the Baptist, and he was working there in Ephesus. And he had a little bit of problem with his theology, but blessed be God, because Aquila and Priscilla came along and said, Later, you, 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 you need to know a little bit more about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's come. The Messiah has come, and here's what he did on the cross, and the third day he rose from the dead, and so forth. And boy, they got him turned around, straightened out, and he became a tremendous evangelist right there in Ephesus. So you had him going at work there, and then you had Aquila and Priscilla as well that were involved in the ministry there. And then, of course, you had the Apostle Paul shows up. And believe me, he really put roots down there. He was there for three years, and he brought a lot of people to saving faith. And he didn't come by himself. He also had his team that joined him. And that's all recorded for you there in the book of Acts. So he spent three years there in Ephesus evangelizing, preaching, teaching Jesus Christ. In fact, the scripture says that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing there in Ephesus. That's Acts 19 verse 20. It goes on and says, all, all who lived in Asia, now that's a big area, everyone heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Acts 19, verse 10. And uh, so, you see, this was a tremendous start, church. I mean, evangelism going on everywhere. Uh, This wasn't people coming from some other church and joining that church. No, I mean, they were getting saved all over the place, all throughout Asia. And then you think about those who pastored and taught at this church. Talk about a good church. I mean, it was a great church. Uh, you had, of course, the Apostle Paul for three years he was there doing that. And then Apollos also was very involved in, in preaching and teaching. And then we know that Timothy, God's, I'm sorry, Paul's uh, disciple, he had sent him back to Ephesus. You remember the books of First and Second Timothy? Well, they were sent to Timothy who was pastoring the Ephesus church. And so you had a tremendous backlog of great pastors and teachers there. In fact, tradition says that the Apostle John, after he was discharged from the island Patmos, he also lived out the remaining part of his days, or his days, there in Ephesus. So you talk about a church, wow. And uh, we have then, secondly, our Lord's address to the angel of the churches, 
or the church in Ephesus. Our Lord's address to the angel. Just a couple things to say about that. You can read the best of scholars on this text and they'll say, well, someone say, you know, it, it had to be the preacher. So the lead pastor was who it is. And there are very, very excellent men who uh, believe that. And the word angelos is often translated messenger, so it possibly could be that. But there's another group of very excellent quality men that say, no, it's a reference to an actual angel, angelos, as it's used all the way through Revelation. And I don't know which it is. He didn't tell me. He didn't reveal that to me, so I'm not going to argue that point. But uh, I think it's wonderful to think that God might have assigned an angel to this church right here. And uh, we know that demonic fallen angels are certainly assigned here. They don't like what's going on at all. When people love one another, when the Word of God is accurately proclaimed and taught and so forth, and you, t- you try to get doctrinal and moral purity to be the way we live and so forth, well, they don't like that. And certainly if you're doing evangelism and missions, they definitely don't like that. So uh, it could be angels. It could be that uh, the angel there's uh, got me in his hands. I, I trust he does. But I'm not dogmatic, so we'll go to the next point there. Number three, our Lord's significance of his personal revelation to the Ephesian church. You don't want to miss what he's trying to drive home to them by how he reveals himself to each one of these churches. It has an impact and importance to the very message that he gives to that church And so it will to you and me as well. So his personal revelation to this church has great impact, significance to these people. And it magnifies this particular message to them. Well, he says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. It explains this. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand... And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So they're either a literal angel or it's the, the senior pastor, if you please, there. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches that, he's, that he particularly pointed out there. Well, what does that mean? What's the significance then him saying that the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand? He's speaking, dear ones, of his sovereignty, his control, his authority over this church. Our Lord is emphasizing his sovereign control, his power and authority in and over the church. The church of the redeemed belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ having been purchased with His precious blood and indwelt by His Holy Spirit. Listen, this is not my church. Amen? I knew you'd say that. This is not your church. We're here because the Lord has brought us here corporately to worship, but this is His church. And each of those churches that really are composed of redeemed people that are being faithful to the word belongs to him. That's the emphasis that he wants to drive home to this church. And then he speaks about the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You know what's important about that? What does that stress? His very presence. Boy, 
when you think about the message he's going to bring to this Ephesian church, that becomes very, very important, very, very powerful. That speaks of his very presence. He is in the very midst of that church. I have often said that when you come to church, you ought to experience a little taste of heaven. I really mean that with all of my heart. Maybe I should go to further and say this. If you're not experiencing a little taste of heaven, first examine your own heart and life. Okay. But if you say, man, I've examined my heart and life and I come to church here and I don't get a little taste of heaven, then go somewhere else. It's that important. You want the Lord to direct you. But listen, when you come to church, He says, listen, I am there in your very midst. Therefore, He should be what? The focal point. And indeed, when they lead us in those different choruses and hymns that we use up here, or we open the Scriptures, be it even Sunday school, or when I preach, the whole emphasis ought to be Jesus Christ. He says, I'm trying to get your focus back on me. I'm in your midst. I'm in your presence, walking right in your midst. Tremendous. A little taste of heaven here upon earth. And so, you see, we should meet the Lord here, worshiping Him in our singing, of course, in praying, in the sharing of His written word, or in it at the communion table. We'll do that next week when we take those elements that represent His body and His shed blood. Do this, He says, in remembrance of me, or in our giving financially for the work of the ministry, or in our giving to one another using our spiritual gifts. We ought to meet the Lord Jesus Christ here and experience a little taste of heaven. And you know what? I love coming to church for that reason. I really do. You know, if if I wasn't paid for doing this, I say, well, would I be in church? Yes, I would. And I'm glad you're in church too. Why? Because you want that little taste of heaven. You want that corporate experience of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ and being blessed. And blessing Him. And blessing one another. And that's how we find encouragement and all the more as we see that day drawing near. So it's a vital, important thing. And He meets this church as He's right there in their very midst. I would say again, how important then is it for you and me to make every effort to come to church? It really is. When you realize why. He's here. He, he's there to meet us. Walk in our midst. Hebrews 10, 23-25 answers that question. Let us hold fast, hang on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And by the way, when you, when you start leaving church, you begin to waver. You begin to waver. Because that's exactly where Satan wants you, wants you. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, give some thought, serious thought, how to stimulate one another to what? What, what is it? You know it. To love. To love. And what does he say here? I have this against you. You've left your first love. We'll see the significance as we move along. So it can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some. So it was happening, wasn't it? He clear back there. I'll tell you why it was happening back there. They were undergoing very severe persecution. And that's why they were forsaking their assembling together and thinking about going back to their old ways. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'll talk a little bit more about that tonight in our business meeting. 
about a direction of my life anyway that relates to this church. Listen, I, I say this from my heart as a pastor, and I'm sure the elders, they would say the very same thing. It troubles me. It saddens me, and dear ones, it greatly, it greatly concerns me that some of God's redeemed don't consider their attendance in church all that important. Sort of optional, you know. I mean, it's a good thing, but it's sort of optional. And they're passing that same attitude on to their little ones, to their children. Wow. Sports. You know, the world devil, he's smart, he's clever. Sports, soccer, little league, basketball, ballet, and that list goes on and on. It affects all of us in different ways, of course. Listen, one thing your Lord and Savior will make plain to you and me is in this message to us that he gives to us in these seven churches that there is indeed a price to pay. This is not an easy thing. No. No, it's costly. But I see where parents sort of begin the drifting, and that goes back to Hebrews 2, lest we what? Drift away. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He said, listen, I saved you. You're mine. I walk in your midst. The reason for being in church is that we can encourage one another and worship the Lord and grow in that relationship and become stronger and just get a little taste of heaven here upon the earth. It is extremely important. One of the things I deal with, and I have no answers to this, and that is I see, because I've been around now for a few years. Okay. I hold my age good. Thank you. Bless you. But, but listen, I, I, I've been around long enough that I see what's going on. I've seen generations. And, and what happens is so often when mom and dad begin to be casual about church, and you know, the kids will put a lot of pressure on you. You know that, man. I mean, go have some fun on Sunday morning or go to church. But listen, if they saw that you so love the Lord Jesus Christ and you enjoy, it's ex- and, and by the way, it ought to be exciting to go to church. I want to say that too. It ought to be fun to go to church. Thank you. That was a weak amen, but it ought to be. It ought to be so exciting that your kids, regardless of the pressures of the world, will want to be there because I'll tell you what happens. When you begin to drift away, I guarantee you, your kids are going to drift along with you and pretty soon they're not interested in church at all. And that, dear ones, that, dear ones, is not an option. You understand that? That is not an option because then Satan says, now they're mine. They're mine. You watch the decisions that they'll make, those lifetime decisions, and it will destroy them. I can't be strong enough about it. This is not just about the individual. This is about the Lord walking in the midst of a local assembly here. He says, come, I'm in your midst. Come and meet me and grow in me and find encouragement and strength in me. So it's His very presence. And you know what? It's easy to come to church and miss His presence. It really is. But I, I, I just want to stress, we try our best, we want to do our best here, that when you come, you actually get a taste of heaven. From His Word, from the fellowship with one another, from the music and all that. You just get a taste of heaven, and you can say, I'm glad that I was in the house of the Lord. 
So I encourage you, make it your priority and and desire to be in church because our Lord and Savior is here walking in our midst. And we belong to Him, and we come for fellowship with Him and one another, and we come to worship Him. That brings us to the next part of the outline, the Lord Jesus Christ's commendation to the Ephesian church. He commends them. Let me read verses 2 and 3. And uh, from it says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The Lord Jesus Christ's commendation to the Ephesian church. Listen, folks, listen. This would have been a great church to attend and join. Man. Think about being a part of this church, the Ephesian church. Those who would be looking for a pastor would love to have gotten a hold of, Hey, Paul, here's my resume. Call me there. I want to be a part of that church. That is a dynamic, exciting, growing church. I want to pastor it. As said, it had been started and nurtured by some of the best. you got the Apostle Paul, Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla, Timothy, and on and on. Now, it was between 30 and 40 years old. You know what? At least two generations, and I bet... Three. You know why I say that? Because I think of the 40 years or so that this church has been in existence, and we have three generations here. Might have four. Might be able to squeak out four. I don't know. But we have three different generations. Think about it. Grandpa and Grandma, Dad and Mom, and then their, their kids. All going to the same church and loving it. Isn't that cool? That is really great. Well, they were that way. It was very evangelistic. It was solid doctrinally. People in it had been well discipled. They were diligent in serving the Lord. They were using their spiritual gifts. This was what I call an active, growing church. Because of the believers in this church, all of Asia had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. This church had even planted other churches throughout Asia. I mean, this was a great church. And so, number two, our Lord praises the Ephesian church. He sees it all. He's walking in their midst. He's there. He's fellowshipping with them, and he praises the Ephesian church. He praises them for their deeds and strenuous toil in verses 2 and 3. Yeah, they were really an active, energetic church. They were diligently out there sharing their faith, evangelizing, getting people saved. They were giving to missions. Obviously, Paul was traveling around. They were supporting him when he did that. Praying for their missionaries and even going on mission trips. By the way, John was on the Isle of Patmos. It's only about 15 miles from Ephesus. So I imagine they were going back and forth to visit him. They were discipling their new converts and they were active in Bible studies. What a church. And we learn from Paul's letter to this church, written to its pastor, Timothy, that they were meeting the needs of their widows. First Timothy chapter 5. They were involved with meeting the widows, the young ones and the old ones. Tremendous church. He praises them for standing firm against sin. And those who continue to promote sinful living. Look at verse 2 with me again. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So this is a doctrinally sound, solid, well-taught church here. They uh, stood firm against sin. They stood firm against those who continued to promote sinful living. 
They kept the standard of God high. They had not lost their sensitivity to sin. They confronted sin. And they also confronted the sinner. You see that. You see these guys that come around, they get these letters and say, well, this church over here, you know, they, from Jerusalem, they sent me here. And, uh, therefore you ought to let me preach. You ought to let me teach. And they say, whoa, hold the, hold here. Let's, what do you believe? What's your doctoral statement? How, where do you stand? And so forth. And boy, if they smelled anything that, like those legalists that you said, that would come in and so forth, they'd say, not so. You're not doing that in this church. That's a solid church. And that was the way they were. This was a church that held high the standard of God, and God was blessing it. They had not lost their sensitivity to sin. They confronted sin. They confronted the sinner. And this was a pure church that pursued holy living. Then he praises them for their spiritual discernment. I'm troubled about that. Even good Bible teaching churches have lots of people that are saved, that have been in church a long time, and I'm over, I'm appalled by some of the things I hear, realizing there's not much discernment in that. You know, they listen to these different ones on TV, and I'll tell you what, you listen long enough, and you listen to their message, and so forth, you say, wait a minute, that does not square with what the Bible says at all. You know, they're, whoa, man, I was so blessed by this person. Yeah. God does honor that which they're true to the Scriptures, no doubt about that. But believe me, today we have discernment. You say, how do you know that? Because it says in the tribulation, and we're not in the tribulation, it says that it's possible He would even deceive the elect. It's going to be that deadly, that deceptive. And so believe me, we need what? We need one another again. And that's why it's so important you be involved with a church that truly is teaching the Word of God, not just giving out sermons. Sermons are good, but you need the whole counsel of God, and I do as well. And so I encourage you in that. And this was the type of church this was here. He praised them for uh, standing firm against sin and those who continue to promote sin. And he praised them for their spiritual discernment. They discerned that these apostles were not real apostles. They were false. But notice down in verse 6, he goes on, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's an interesting verse. We don't know much about these guys. We just know that they showed up. Nikao, by the way, means Nike, conqueror. Laos means people. So somehow they put together, they're somehow trying to conquer people is the idea behind that. But it's interesting, he says, I not only hate their deeds, I hate them. Now, God could say that. In other words, you hate those that promote the sinner. I don't, how shall I say this? God still loved them, didn't he? So it isn't, it isn't the kind of hatred that's, that's trying to damn them in that sense, but it means that you're, you, their, their righteous or their unrighteous kind of living it grieves your spirit, and you're angry about that. And he says, you're just like me, and I commend you for that. It's interesting, they were not tolerating them in the Ephesian church. You drop down to the Pergamum church, they were. They had found a church that would receive them and accept them and their false teaching, and they were well-rooted in that church. We'll see that, Lord willing, at another time. Next, he praises them for their ongoing perseverance. Twice he emphasizes that. Verse 2, I know know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. Verse uh, 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not 
grown weary. There are hardships. There is suffering. There is loss. But this church, these people, got up and kept going. There are disappointments, aren't there? Oh, yeah. In church, even. This church. Disappointments. There's ingratitude. There's criticism. There's lack of response. But it did not cause them to give up and quit. They lived out what Paul wrote to the Galatian church. Do not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. It reminds me of that wonderful testimony in this church of your dad and mom, Alex. I have to say it, and you who missed uh, Les and Lillian, uh, they were in, they served and served and served, and they were in Awana. But I'll tell you what, one day, one day I was over there at the school, one evening on Wednesday night, and, he, and first of all, I'm not, I'm not even sure, Alex, they should have been driving. You know, that was a scary part there. But here they are in the mid-80s or higher, and here's Les, who's blind, he's feeling his way down the wall to get to his classroom to work with those kids. I think, man, Lord, that's an example of just... That's endurance, that's perseverance, that's faithfulness. What a testimony. I'm glad to share that here in this body of believers. What a testimony to you and me to keep on going, no matter what. And they did. They did. <laughs> Reminds me of W.A. Criswell told about the old evangelist who uh, was gone a lot, but he, he loved hunting, and he got him a couple of setters. And uh, he was just trying to train them all that, and he said he had them out in the backyard, and there was this old bulldog. The bulldog came tromping down by the down the alley, and he hopped over the fence. And he said, "My first thought was to take my setters, lest they just tear that bulldog apart." And he said, "No, no, he needs to learn a lesson." So he let the two bulldogs go, and I mean, they really tore that thing apart. And the old bulldog, he had enough. He hopped out, went down the street. They good. That'll teach him a lesson. Next morning, he said, at the same time. Here came the old bulldog down. He jumped, jumped the fence in. And again, had enough, got out of there. And day after day, the same time he said he came down there. Well, the evangelist was called to do some weeks of meetings, and so he's gone. And he came back and he said to his wife, what about that bulldog? Did he ever learn his lesson? She said, honey, you won't believe it. Every single day at the same time he came down, he jumped that fence. The fence he got in the big fight with those those, uh, those setters of yours. And he says, finally one day he jumped that fence and they, those two setters started whimpering. They ran off and went in the house. So they won't come out. You see, <laughs> he said, you may be chewed up, bitten and so forth, but he said, you just keep in there. And there's something about those who persevere, they overcome, do they not? And indeed... They did. So discouragement, despite being chewed up, beaten down, cast out, they endured everything. They remained steadfast in their serving God. And now we come to the next major point in your outline. So important. The Lord Jesus Christ's condemnation of the Ephesian church. Verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you. Here he is in their presence. The one who tends the candlesticks as the high priest did there in the holy place. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I don't know about you, but that is so difficult a message. It's almost hard to get a hold of. It's like, who's ever loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength? Even in what 
what church, what, what group of believers has ever done that? And so it's like, well, yeah, it's always going to apply. And you try to figure, well, how do you apply this? How do I get a hold of this? How do I let the Lord do the work in my life that he wants to do? Well, number one, our Lord's expression of deep concern. It's almost a surprise. It's almost a footnote you'd think wouldn't be there. I mean, when you talk about how incredible this church is, strong doctrine, strong moral purity, involved with evangelism and discipleship and so forth, and encouraging one another, it's like, what church then could escape such an indictment? You see, our love, our first love is the foundation of our Christian life. And it's the foundation of the church. First love. Your Lord and Savior is greatly concerned about your and my passion and love for Him and for His people, His church. Remember, He's walking in the midst of a church. So yes, there's the individual application that we all should make, indeed, because we're the church. But He's talking about a body of believers that He's in the midst. And... This need for reclaiming first love. We know what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's very important then that we embrace correct doctrine, that we believe right. It's also very important that we faithfully serve the Lord, that we faithfully come to church to grow and serve one another. But foundational to all of this is the heartbeat of your and my love for the Lord and Savior. You know this text well, but let me share it. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, wow, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What a contrast. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I want you to turn to a couple passages that are not easy to handle. But I do a lot of thinking about it, and so should you. 1 John 2. A couple of verses out of chapter 2 of 1 John. 1 John 2. And I think one of the great mistakes is to take these particular verses I'm going to share with you and, and say, well, that relates to the unsaved person. My problem is it was written to believers, the book of 1 John. And this command, verse 15, you know it well. Do not love the world... We're talking about losing your first love. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Boy, what a pull there is there in my life and your life. We're just built, we live in a real physical world. Many goes on. 
So he says, don't love the world, don't love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I look elsewhere at Scripture and it tells us that he loves us with an everlasting love. So I don't think it means God doesn't love us and his love's not in us. I think it means our love for him. We don't have a love for him. The love of the Father, the love of or for the Father, is not in him. Going on, though, in that chapter, is one of the hardest verses, I think, in the Bible. And I'm being drawn back to it over and over again. That's verse 28, the same chapter. Again, written to you and me. Family of God. Believers. Now, little children, those are redeemed people. Abide in him. Either you will or you won't. It's not talking about losing your salvation. You are saved if you put your faith in him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I don't know about you, but that's a powerfully convicting verse. The implication to me is so clear. He says, when he comes, there will be those that belong to me. And yes, they're going to go, but they're going to shrink away from me in shame. He walks in the midst of this church and says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Get back to it. He walks in our midst. And so Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, whenever we meet, he says, I'm in your midst. Come and enjoy me. Grow in me. Worship me. Let me strengthen you. This is not optional. This is essential, is it not? If we're going to overcome love of the world. And I don't know about you, but I think of what Paul said as he was going home to be with the Lord. I fought the good fight. I finished the faith. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. But not to me only, but to all. All those who love his appearing. Huh. To come to church and love him. To walk out of here loving him. Growing in that love. Those are the people that say, not just because we don't like the way the world's going, but those are the people that say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I love you. I know I'm not perfect. And I struggle with that, you'll say, and I will say. But I love you, and I'll love your appearing because my life is wrapped up in you. It's like somebody that's gotten engaged, deeply loves that dear girl, and what does he want to do? He wants to be married. Wants that time to come to pass, and that's what he's talking about. One other scripture I want to share with you, and it is very hard. It's even harder than the one we just looked at, I think, is James 4. And again, I don't think that he's talking to unbelievers here. I think that James is talking to believers. And he says in verses 4 and 5, we can read all, but just verse 4, he says, you adulteresses. Whoa. Why? Because you're in the bed with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. What's He talking about? He says, I'm in your midst. I want to have fellowship with you. 
That's the most precious and dearest thing to me. I want to have fellowship with you. And so he says to this church as he's walking in its midst, Look, you're doing great stuff. You're faithful to the Word. You're guarding the, the Scriptures. You're evangelizing. Uh, you're, you're loving one another. But he says, Look, it, get back to loving me. So let's go to that. Number two. Our Lord sets before us the pathway for restoring our first love. He sets before us the pathway. He says there in verse 5, Therefore remember, oh dear ones, He takes you all the way. Go go back to Ephesus. I mean, they were worshipping Diana. They were under the power of the devil. They were in darkness. And Paul comes along and and, uh, he sets people free and he preaches to them the gospel and they get saved. And they're so gloriously saved. They're so exciting. They take all their magic books and I mean by the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and they go out there and they burn it. They take all their idols that they had before and they throw them in the fire as well. I mean, they're so excited. They're so free. They're filled with the joy of the Lord. They now that they're complete, they know now they're completely forgiven. They know now that I'm going to go to heaven. I've had a taste of heaven. I've had more than a taste of heaven. I have the Lord Jesus Christ living in my life. Oh, they were excited. You know, going to church for them was the most exciting thing they could do. They were so excited because they're learning about Jesus, learning about God. Encouraging one another. I mean, and here comes, guess what? Here comes some, and this would really help here too. Here came a bunch of new Christians as they met that, that particular day or night. And they were so excited about it. They got saved and they're forgiven and they're going to heaven and they wanted to learn more and they're sharing. And then the next day, here come a bunch more. I mean, what an exciting church. He says, get back to that first love for me. My. Remember. Remember what it was like back there when you first met the Lord. You were so glad to be forgiven, to know you're going to heaven. You had such joy, such peace. You couldn't get enough of church. You couldn't get enough of Bible study. You wanted to be with other believers. I mean, this, singing those songs, they were so exciting to you. They were so new and different and wonderful. That's what he's talking about. And then he says, repent. It's interesting when Peter fell. And the Lord had a special meeting with him, remember Acts, or, uh, John 21. And he says, Peter, are you ready to get back in the saddle and be an apostle? Peter, are you willing to stand up for me and proclaim the gospel there in Jerusalem? Peter, are you willing to be the leader of these other disciples? Set the example. Didn't say that at all, did he? Just one question. He said over and over, a couple different words for it, but he said, Peter, do you love me? Wow. That's how he's going to restore him to the high position as apostle. That one question, Peter, do you love me? Peter was so concerned about how to answer that, he knew his he couldn't depend on himself at all but the Lord restored him to him. that's the question he asked this church and he would ask our church here so he says repent that's what it means it means to have a change my go back there look start coming to church to meet the Lord Jesus Christ start coming to worship him start coming to for the purpose of serving him realize that he is walking in our midst and that will strengthen you and your children 
as you leave here and go out into a very deadly, evil, dangerous world. So remember, repent, and then return. Do those things that you did at first. You know why I call it fixing your eyes on Jesus. Just fixing your eyes on Jesus. You can say, I'm so glad to be forgiven and go to heaven. I'm glad I go to a Bible teaching church and so forth. I'm glad we have friendship and fellowship and we even serve food here once in a while. You know, I'm glad for all that. It's kind of fun to be at church. But he says, no, that's not what it's all about. Fix your eyes on me. When you open up the scriptures, he said, are they, are they not they which testify of me? Meet Jesus on every page of the scripture. Take the time to meet him. Take the time to just talk to him. You don't have to be clever about prayer. Neither do I. Just get some time and open up and begin to read and say, Lord, just speak to my heart and whatever you say. Lord, thank you for that. and Thank you that you've saved me. Thank you for what you're doing in my family. Thank you for this and that. I mean, it just goes on and on. And begin to worship him. Meet him on the pages of scripture and it will change your prayer life and your heart. You've left your first love, he says. Number three, our Lord warns of the removal of our lampstand. Strange, isn't it? Powerful church. Solid doctrine. The best they could have had to found it and develop it. Timothy was there. John would retire there evidently. I mean, powerful church. Yet the day came because they left their first love. It's no more. It's no more. I said this church is similar in that it's about 40 years old. I know for sure the exact age of the church. But I think it had been in existence about 25 years. Abel and I were just talking about that because he was here. And uh, it was going through such difficulty that a vote was taken to close the doors of the church and it failed to close the doors by just two votes. I just say that to say it does happen. Some of you know because you've been in churches where what happened. Not only did they lose their first love for the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't enjoy His presence in their midst as they should and grow in that. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulties and trials, but you were in situations like that, and I suppose I've been that way too. I don't know. I have to think back about that. And you know what? When you lose your first love for Him, it begins to be a little bit difficult loving one another as we ought to. And then church squabbles and so forth happen, and they split. You know, happens every day. Important message, isn't it? It really is important. It's not just as an individual, but he's talking about a body of believers. He says, I am here in your midst. If you lose that love, the time comes, he says, when the light goes out. You know, Though it relates specifically to a local church where he's called believers together like this, you know what? It also happens individually, and oh, I have seen that. People I know are saved. There was a time when they were on fire for the Lord, and then something happened. I don't know what. Often I don't know what. It might have been through a marriage. It might have been through drugs. It might have been through whatever. And they, they got bitter, and they walked away. It's just like their light for the Lord went out. Went out. Serious, isn't it? So he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as to have some, but encourage one another all the more as you see that day drawing near. And we're seeing that. 
And I want us to be that kind of a church. And so we come to the Lord Jesus Christ's promise to all who overcome. Verse 7. His promise to all who overcome. He who has an ear. Okay, it's for you and me. We have ears. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. I will grant to you the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Without turning there, but I'll give you the reference. John 5, 4 and 5 talks about the ones who overcome. Well, you know what? I do need to turn there. First John 5, 4 and 5. You write it in your notes. Here's what it says. Who is the one who overcomes? Remember, John wrote the book of Revelation as well. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because says, let me go back here. Verse 4. For what, whatsoever is born of God, there it is, for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you're saved, you are an overcomer. And he promises you something, and it's a wonderful promise here. So he makes it clear in his message, is for our church as well, under that promise, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ promised to all who overcome. He makes it clear that his message is for our church as well, because he has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Number two, his promise is for the one who overcomes. That's First John 5, 4 and 5. That's the one who puts our faith in Jesus Christ. And he promises the tree of life in the paradise of God. You were introduced to that tree in Genesis 1. Adam fell, Eve fell, and they were forbidden to eat of it because it gives eternal life. But we find it again here, and in chapter 22 of Revelation, we find it in the new Jerusalem, and we who will be there will enjoy that tree. So much more can be said, but that's not the purpose of this morning's message. So he promises the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the whole emphasis is this. The whole emphasis, dear ones, for you and me is this. When the Lord Jesus Christ walks in your midst, do you understand he's here walking in your midst today? The Holy Spirit says, my job is to teach you the scriptures. I mean, the Holy Spirit does that. To point you to him. He walks in your midst today. May we renew, rekindle, and grow in his love. How do you do it? Focus on him. It isn't being a Christian, getting to go to heaven. It's being a Christian, belonging to him. Loving, enjoying, serving, growing with him. Father, we thank you for this time. May you protect this church. Thank you for what you have done. May people come here and discover you, Lord Jesus Christ. May they come and get saved. May they come and find we love you. We love one another. Oh, Father, the enemy is so subtle. He shows up too. He wants to join the church. He wants to destroy the church. I pray that you'll protect us. Help us to be strong in doctrine, to be discerning, but and be pure. But, Father, I plead with you, help us to rekindle our first love for you, Lord Jesus Christ, and be able to say, we love your appearing. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
Amen.